Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. Good morning and welcome to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes, and for the next 30 minutes, I'm going to invite you to stay with me. It will be 30 minutes of motivation, some inspiration, some education, without any form of manipulation. By that I mean we have no request for money. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're not trying to hustle you up to get you to give it up, fess it up, or even throw up. <laughs> We're just trying to give you accurate information. Information that will help verify and identify God's plan for your life. If you're interested, if you have even a little bit of hunger to want to understand how God's plan works, then you're listening to the right show. I'm not a pastor, I'm simply an evangelist, but I'm here to give you some accurate information that will stimulate your thinking, hopefully that will encourage you to search out where you can find a qualified pastor, one that can teach you God's word on a consistent basis so that you can learn and apply and eventually glorify God in your life. So thank you for listening to The Flight Line every Sunday on this radio station. We are here by the grace of God, and that's the only reason we're here. God provides the funds and the availability for us to do this. And uh, when God's through with us, the funds won't be there, I'm sure. But right now, they're available, and we're here because they don't give us this time. This is always purchased, but God is faithful, and he always supplies. And so thank you for being a faithful listener. Thank you for tuning in, especially those of you in the Grass Valley area up in the Northern California, those of you in Tucson and all that you've been through recently, amazing what your city has faced. Those of you in Amarillo, those of you in Springfield, Missouri, those of you, um, gee, I'm trying to think where all we got them, Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Frederick, Maryland, even up in the state of New York, and if I've left anybody out, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Yes, thank you. Thank you for all of you that listen to this radio show. And I pray that you'll stay with me. And you all, as always, I love to hear from you. So if you're encouraged or, or you're learning anything, don't hesitate to write us and let us know. You can always uh, contact us through the World Wide Web on our, on our Internet website. And that is simply rickhughesministries.org, rickhughesministries.org. Or you can send us a letter. Uh, that's P.O. Box 100. And we live in this big city called Cropwell, Alabama. So it's P.O. Box 100 in Cropwell, Alabama. And our zip code here is 35054. So again, thank you. If you've been listening for the last few weeks, you know I told you that we are in the process of writing a book for those men and women across the country that are incarcerated. This book is called A Divine Pardon. And it is my prayer as we go to print with this and uh, as we trust the Lord to provide that it will be used by a lot of friends of mine who uh, have ministries with incarcerated individuals across the country. So anyhow, pray for us as we finish this book up and get it printed and begin to distribute it uh, throughout the country to the different institutions that need it. Today we want to talk about the three different stages of arrogance. This is all part of this book called A Divine Pardon. 
We left off with a verse last week in Proverbs twelve fifteen. It said, A stubborn fool considers his own way the right way, but a person who listens to advice is wise. When a stubborn fool is irritated, he shows it immediately, but a sensible person hides the insult, written by Solomon. Now, there are three stages of arrogance, and this is what I want you to see. When we're talking about the stubborn fool, we're talking about the arrogant individual. Very seldom will you hear churches talk about arrogance. They'll talk about sin and what is a sin and what is not a sin. Most of the time, they will never tell you that mental attitude sins are some of the worst, but they will never, I repeat, you will never hear taught in a church anything about evil, and you will seldom hear anything taught about arrogance in a church. And so we're dealing with arrogance here today. And I want you to listen carefully because arrogant people like to believe that they're justified in everything that they do. They overlook their own failures. And they seem to have this idea that the rules are only for other people. If that's you, and you have a trend of arrogance, it always works like this. It starts with self-justification. When you get into self-justification, you will make excuses even though you know it's wrong, you will make excuses for doing it and you will blame someone else or blame the situation, but you're not willing to take responsibility for your actions. That's the first stage of arrogance. And that can lead quickly to the second stage. That stage is called self-deception. And this is where you deceive yourself. You don't see yourself as you really are. You don't see your life with any objectivity. You uh, only see it subjectively, only looking at your own world. And then from that, an arrogant person will always get into total self-absorption. That's the third stage of arrogance. And when you get into this stage, once you get totally self-absorbed, it's at this point that any standard any protection in your soul, any norm that you ever learned, you'll do away with it. And you'll be willing to do anything to ease your own unhappiness. You will have complete disregard for others, anyone but yourself. That's the way arrogance works. It is so horrible. I've seen it in so many cases, and I've seen it in my own life. And you know what I'm talking about as well. I'm thinking of a person that I cared a lot about at one time, and he was a professional fisherman, and he got hooked on drugs. And I remember him giving an interview, and in the interview he said, it's not my fault, I didn't know I had this disease. Well, I beg to differ, but lust for drugs is not a disease. A psychologist will tell you. Oh, yes, well, he, he had this, this trend, and he didn't know it, so he's not really responsible. But he is responsible. We're all responsible for our decisions. And we can't deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not guilty when we sin and violate the standards of the Word of God. And we can't deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not guilty when we totally get a sword with what we want and sell out. That's why arrogant people have an unrealistic self-image because they don't 
see themselves as they are, and particularly like God sees them. They don't see that at all. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no bigger turnoff than an arrogant, self-righteous, religious person. This is the person that I don't want anything to do with. He never sees his own flaws. He never sees his own failures. But you know what's funny is he sure is good at finding yours. For example, let me give you an example. He may think he's gaining God's favor because he doesn't drink or he doesn't smoke. And he'll look down at somebody that does. And he will present himself as a person who has a squeaky clean image. But he doesn't fool God, I promise you. Proverbs 23, 7 tells us this, For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. This arrogance, like I told you, you know, it's seldom discussed in churches, and for good reason, because the concept of organized religion is at best a very arrogant concept. Unlike Christianity, which is a personal relationship between God and man through man's faith, in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion, on the other hand, is man attempting to seek God's approval. And it is the height of arrogance to think that you can earn your way into heaven by being good or by following some religious code because God is not impressed by any membership in any organization, church or not, service organization or not. God's not impressed with a self-inflated attitude. God's not impressed when you throw a few bucks in the offering plate in order to impress other members of the congregation. You see, salvation does not come through false goodness or even through your obedience to the golden rule. That's not how you get it. These all qualify as works, and they totally contradict the grace principle of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 which says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, and not of works, lest anyone would brag about it. How many times have you heard me say we're all sinners? Have you heard me say there's nothing we can do to gain God's approval on our own? We can't earn it. We don't deserve an eternal relationship with an almighty, perfect, holy, and just God. We can't meet that standard. The Bible says there are none that are righteous. No, not any. But our gracious God and his attitude towards us provided everything that we needed. All we have to do is accept it. And if you add anything to that, you will neutralize your faith. It's not faith plus giving up sodas. It's not faith plus giving up tobacco. It's not faith plus giving up anything. It's faith alone in Christ alone. This is something the religious leaders of the Old Testament, they were called Pharisees and scribes and whatever. They didn't understand that. They saw Jesus as an irreverent irreverent tax breaker, lawbreaker. You know why? Because he hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors. And uh, by the way, they were both hated in biblical times by the religious crowd in Jerusalem. And Jesus, our Lord, made it clear that he was the Son of God. When he made that clear, when he made that statement, 
Well, that religious crowd became indignant. They went ballistic, and they began to plot his death. Surely, the true Son of God would not associate, they thought, with such unrighteous sinners as tax collectors and prostitutes. Here's a principle for you to remember. A religious man will kill you and think he's doing God a favor. And that's exactly what these men did. These Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, they plotted to kill Jesus. And in reality, they made it happen because Pilate said he's not guilty. But they forced him through political uh, uh, threat to go ahead and send Christ to the cross. You know, in reality, Jesus not only befriended these sort of people I'm talking about and guaranteed their eternal life by his death on the cross, but he did it for us as well. I mean, an act of grace like that on the part of Jesus Christ flies in the face of any religious leader. Any religious leader who believes that he could work his way into heaven can't do it, and they don't like it. The Pharisees, the other religious leaders, they were so stuck in their own self-righteous attitude that it actually offended them. Grace offended them. It upset them that their particular brand of good deeds was not good enough to measure up to God's absolute perfection and righteousness. So they called for his death. An innocent man, John eleven fifty three. quote, then from that day forth they took counsel together to put Jesus to death. You know, things are not really different today when it comes to organized religion, which, by the way, also emphasizes works rather than faith. Even now, many religious people in their arrogance cannot accept the fact that God's gift of salvation is available to everybody, regardless of whatever sins they may have committed, it still angers many people that their production, their works, their good deeds does not please God and it does not buy them a ticket to heaven. And they cannot stand it that God is impartial and that we, the imperfect ones, are guaranteed eternal life because of who and what Jesus Christ is, not because of who and what we are. And a lot of people, believe it or not, reject Christ for this very reason and lose their opportunity to be delivered from the lake of fire in eternity. The worst mistake anyone could ever make is to reject the free gift of God, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. The Bible says, He that believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And he that believes not, the wrath of God abides on him already. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ had a lot of humility. It was in sharp contrast to those self-inflated attitudes of the religious leaders. We see this in the way he handled all the treatment that he received, which was unfair during his time on earth. The Bible has this to say about Jesus in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It says, who, that's referring to Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant 
and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now that's true humility. I mean, think about this just for a minute. Put your thinking cap on. If I were to say, give me a definition of humility, that doesn't mean you walk around all day with your shoulders slumped over, your eyes on the ground. Does it mean you're to act like a wimp and never hurt even a little fly? Well, the answer is obviously no. Humility that I'm speaking of refers to respect for authority, fair or unfair. This is what you have to learn about life. Authority is there. An authority like Pilate, who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, can make a decision that's fair or they can make a decision that's unfair. Whatever decision comes your way, how will you handle it? If it's unfair, the arrogant person will scream and jump up and down and holler and shake his fist and roll his eyes and throw a fit. But the person with humility, if a decision is made towards him that is unfair, he will keep his mouth shut and he will take it because he realizes it's not the end of the world. That's the difference. When someone in charge of you makes a decision that you deem unfair and you don't like it, then you have one of two choices. You can react or you can respond. And this is where arrogant people cannot handle unfair treatment. They get mad, they blow up, they run their mouth, they make all sorts of threats. But people that have humility, they know they're getting a bad deal. They know that but they keep their mouth shut and they handle the pressure with forgiveness. You and I can only manage to do this when we learn to think like Christ thought. And we achieve this by renovating our thinking. And I want to explain more about that a little bit later on, but first of all, let me tell you what happened to our Lord. When he was arrested the night before he was crucified, he was subjected to a lot of different trials. I don't know if you know that. But they were mostly held at night, and they were illegal. He was even beaten prior to his trial. And although Pilate, the judge who handled the case, actually found him innocent, he was, in fact, killed. Listen to John 19, 1 through 4. So then Pilate took Jesus, scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, And they put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail the king of the Jews, making fun of him, see. Going back to the passage now. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, I bring him out to you so that you may know I find no fault with him. So he had him beaten, and then he made fun of him, and he brought him out and said, Okay, this ought to be enough. Now I've humiliated him. I've humbled him. You can see uh, he's broken, and uh, so he's nothing else I can do. And so he pronounced guilty, not guilty. He pronounced Jesus not guilty. But the Lord was still given the death sentence, still given the death sentence because the political pressure on Pilate caused him to give in to the demands of the Pharisees. And this is where John writes these words in John 19. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend, because whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and set him down in the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement, but in Hebrew it's called Gabbatha. The Bible now goes into verse 14 and says this, It was the day of preparation for the Passover in the sixth hour. That's six o'clock in the morning. And he said to the Jews, Here is your king. And they cried out, Do away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered and said, Listen carefully, We have no king but Caesar. Now the Jews hated Caesar. They hated the Romans. And yet here they were pledging allegiance to Caesar in order to get Pilate to crucify Jesus. If this were you, if you were dragged into this courtroom, how would you handle it? Would you have been kicking and screaming about how unfairly you were being treated? Did you notice how Jesus responded to Pilate's authority to put him to death? I told you that all authority comes from God, and Jesus Christ on earth as a man submitted to that authority, realizing that his heavenly Father ordained it. This is what Jesus said. Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus said, You would have no power at all unless it had been given to you from above. See, our Lord knew that his mission was to die on that cross. He knew that. There was never a question about that. He came to this earth with that one purpose in mind, and in his humility, he allowed Pilate to order his crucifixion. Listen to what he told the disciples in Matthew 20. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And the third day, he will rise again. Pilate, he didn't have a clue about the significance of this ruling. As far as he was concerned, he was simply putting to death the man who was causing a disturbance. However, this was much, much more than a routine Roman execution. This was the guarantee of our salvation. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, it was even prophesied to the T. Almost, listen, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes are we healed. Several thousand years before the Lord came, Isaiah wrote these words, predicting the death of the Messiah. Matthew describes the event as follows. This is what Matthew wrote. 
Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, he cannot even save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross and then we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him, for he claimed to be the son of God. Even one of the robbers crucified alongside Christ reviled him with the same words. Matthew 27, 41. But our Lord's humility was noticed. You see these two other men being executed simultaneously with Christ. Their crosses were on either side of his. The Bible records the crucifixion of Jesus, by the way, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But only Luke records the amazing mention of a divine pardon issued to the second of those two criminals. While one blasphemed Christ, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And the other corrected his friend, saying, we receive the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to Jesus and he said these words, Lord, remember he called him Lord now. That means he believes. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man accepted the true identity of the Savior. And the answer Jesus gave him was astounding. Here's what Jesus said. Assuredly, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23:43. Wow. On the cross, at the point of death, a man was saved by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and thou shalt be saved. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you are. But I know a divine pardon is offered to you as well. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And today, by means of accepting Christ as your Savior, you can have a new life. You can have a wonderful, bright future through the plan of God if you'll learn it, live it, apply it into your life. What an amazing thing, a divine pardon. Yeah, Jesus could have walked off that cross. He's God. However, had he did it, we, we would still be condemned to our spiritual death for all eternity. But our Lord's mindset was of humility and submission to the authority of his Father, even though it was not fair. The Bible says, For he, God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Your righteousness must be the righteousness of Christ, or you are a counterfeit. You cannot approach God in your own righteousness. It won't work. And just as he granted a pardon to that thief on the cross, he will grant you the pardon as well. The Bible says clearly, whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Until next week, this is Rick Hughes saying thank you for listening to The Floodline. Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. 
If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.